Scripture reading will be taken from Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where mud and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where mud and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's word. You may be seated. We're going to continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount by looking at Matthew chapter 6 beginning verse 19 and going to verse 24. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we're grateful that you have come into our life. You have given us the faculties by which to know you, to be aware of you, even to be intimately related to you, Father, by putting your Spirit inside of us. We never want to take this opportunity to draw near to you and you to us for granted. We choose, Father, to be humble. We we choose to be modest before you in all of your beauty and in all of your graciousness, arrayed in holiness. We are grateful, Father, for moments in which we get quiet inside of ourselves in order to hear distinctly your word be spoken into our hearts. To this end, Father, in this particular moment, on this particular day, We pray with all of our heart that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that we are transformed, that we find ourselves turning more fully to face you in all of your holiness. And this is what we pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone said. There's an old joke that I've I've mentioned before. There are these two fish, two young goldfish that are swimming along. Passed by an older fish, and as the older fish is going by, older fish says, How's the water, boys? Young fish swim on. Finally, one says to the other, What's water? The point is that sometimes obvious realities are difficult to talk about. They are. And that is no more true than when we talk about our treasure in general and money in particular. An illustration of that fact is from this past Monday when the largest banking institution in America sent out a tweet that was designed to encourage Americans to save money. 
It depicted a fictional conversation between a person and their bank account that went a little like this. You, why is my bank account so low? Bank account, make coffee at home. Bank account, eat the food that's already in the fridge. Bank account, you don't need a cab, it's only three blocks. You, I guess we'll never know. Bank account, seriously? The backlash. The backlash was so horrific that it was taken down within 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Point of contention among many of the critics was the hypocrisy of a bank that had taken a $25 million bailout back in 2008 trying to give anybody institutional financial uh, advice. There were others that said that it was a slap in the face of the lower economic classes. On the flip side of that, the Federal Reserve says and expects that consumer debt in America is going to hit $4 trillion this year. Ironically, Jesus talks a lot about treasure, talks a lot about money. And there's a reason why. The human heart, and we've talked about this before in some other contexts, but the reason that Jesus speaks so much about money is because he knows that the human heart is made to worship. The Bible never says worship. The Bible assumes that the human heart is going to worship. And so over and over again, from Genesis to the maps, the Bible says, worship God. Now, worshiping, in a manner of speaking, is treasuring God. When you worship, when we have been worshiping God this morning in song and in prayer, and as we participated in the Lord's Supper and, and we gave of our means, what we were doing, what we were saying, what we were singing was that we treasure God above all else. And in this text that, that Moises just read for us, we're going to start at the end of it, work our way back to the beginning of it, but we're going to see three things. Those three things are there is a decision, there's a choice that we have to make. There's a decision we have to make. There is a vision for our life in resolution to the problem. And let's begin with that choice. He says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. No one can ser serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And some of the older translations don't have money. They have the word mammon. Now, a couple of quick observations about what he has said here in verse 24. Number one, recognize that money is not neutral. It is personified. Recognize money is not neutral. It is personified. The reason that money is never neutral is because human beings are not neutral about it. I'll give you an example. The sock on my right foot right now inside of my shoe is neutral. Nobody cares. I don't even care about the sock on my right foot. Nobody cares about it. It's neutral. But money, on the other hand, is not neutral because people are willing to kill for it. They're willing to compromise their character. They're willing to be killed for it. Money is not neutral. Jesus does not talk about money as this lifeless material, but represents it as a rival power to God himself. There's no evidence, even though we, we've heard this maybe uh, preached a lot, 
There is no evidence that there was this Syrian god by the name of Mammon that actually comes from uh, Paradise Lost where Milton uh, portrays Mammon as this fallen demon out of, out of heaven. But that does not mean that money cannot come into your life through an inordinate, excessive, dependent desire and take over your life. And not only take over your life as a rival power to God, but it can ruin your life. Jesus was saying in a different place in Mark chapter 8, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their what? Soul. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is saying the same sort of thing to Timothy, who's a young minister in Ephesus, and he says, the love, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And so Jesus confronts the fragmented allegiance to God in the human heart. Twice in the verse, he says, you cannot serve two masters. In other words, you have to make a choice. And the choice is between two masters. That's how money is personified in this text, in Jesus' words. You cannot serve two masters. And so the decision you have to make is this. You have to decide who owns your heart. When's the last time you asked yourself, who owns you? When's the last time you asked yourself, you know, who really has both hands firmly on my soul and on my heart? Now what Jesus is talking about are masters, not acquaintances, not somebody who agrees with you or somebody that you agree with. It's, he's not talking about whom you interact with occasionally. He's asking, who is your master? The answer to that question settles a lot of issues in our life, does it not? Think about it from a, a human standpoint in terms of, of marriage. From a human relational standpoint, on August 14th, 1982, when I made vows to Ellen that she would be my wife, Till death do us part, I was publicly declaring who owns my heart. And having publicly declared a decision that I had made previously that it's Ellen who's going to own my heart. She is going to be the one who has her hands deeply embedded in my heart and my soul. Knowing who owned my heart settled the issues regarding other women. Settled the issue with, with, with friendships and hobbies and devotion of time and resources. You have to decide who you love and who you're devoted to. Which now brings us to that vision and why this is such a difficult thing to do. And it's that enigmatic statement that we find about the eye and the lamp and darkness and light and the body and all these kinds of things. You also find that text being said by Jesus when he talks about being the light of the world in Luke chapter 11. But listen to the words again that he says as it regards to who is our master and treasure and who we treasure up. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If then your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is diseased, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Uh, One of the the, the commentators on the book of Matthew, a fellow by the name of uh, R.T. France, writes, that this lamp metaphor more naturally suggests the function of the eye providing light which shows the body which way to go. 
again, sort of an enigmatic statement itself. But here's what both Jesus and France, in commentary on Jesus' statement, this is what they're saying. If you walk outside into the sunlight, if your eye is healthy, if your eye works, if your eye functions the way that an eye is designed to function, then you can move through the world avoiding running into dangerous things like trees or, or holes or not running out in front of a moving car. But if your eye does not work, then it doesn't matter how much sunlight surrounds you, your whole body is as if it were in complete darkness. And you cannot see the dangers. Now what in the world does that have to do with what Jesus is talking about? Why does he include that description of the eye and the lamp and the body and darkness and light? The reason is, is this, I think. You, you know, when, when you've been doing ministry for decades like myself and, and Douglas and Barry and, and Richard and, and others, one, one of the things that happens is, you know, people will come into your office or they'll meet you at your home or you'll meet them at their home or coffee shop or something. And they, and they will confess, confess things. Uh, people have confessed adultery. People have confessed, you know, being sort of beset with, with a, a lying lifestyle. Not just that they told a lie, but, but uh, it seems like whenever they're asked a question, their default mode, the first instinct is to lie about something. Uh, I've had people come in and confess about taking the life of others. I have never in 40 years, I have never in 40 years, had anyone come and tell me that they thought they were greedy. There, there is something about this particular thing that Jesus is talking about. This struggle with treasure that somehow we have a blind eye to. That we can, we can see so many different things that are happening you know, around us that we are in, involved in. I mean, nobody says, oh, hey, look at this, I'm driving a car. But some people are so surprised at, at when they discover, usually by the help of someone else, that they're struggling with materialism. And the reason is this. We have to acknowledge that greed is difficult to see. Greed is not synonymous with affluency. You can be blessed with the abilities and opportunities to make money and have a heart that is completely given to God. Abraham, in the Bible, is the father of the faith. And yet, incredibly affluent gentleman. David is, it says twice in, in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and Acts chapter 13, that David, and it's the only one that is described this way, a man who is after the heart of God himself. And God made him an affluent individual as well. On the flip side of that coin, sometimes poor folk can struggle with materialism as much as affluent people. What we have to come to acknowledgement of is that greed and materialism is a human problem. And the reason for that, there, there are lots of them. Uh, you know, we refer to our resources that we receive, a paycheck or whatever it might be, as our earnings. We see that there's always somebody more affluent than us. I don't feel rich because I see somebody down the road that is more affluent than me. Or we live in a culture that blinds our eye to the dangers of consumerism. Or we measure our worth and our success by the amount of money that we receive or we have been given. 
And so once we begin to see that this is not this is not something that is actually very easy to see in our life, we have to number two train our inner eyes. There's a, a book that many of you have read by Annie Dillard. It's uh, it was a Pulitzer Prize winning book back in, I think it was 1968, when she wrote it when she was 28 years old. And the book is about her experience for one year in, um, uh, by Tinker Creek, uh, which was uh, sort of in central Virginia. And, and one of the chapters inside of the book deals with sin. And she talks about, you know, you could, you could walk up to people who had been living in this area, Tinker Creek, all their lives and ask, you know, hey, are there a lot of snakes in those woods? And they would say, no, I've never seen one all the years that I've lived here. But then a herpetologist goes into those woods and comes out with three bags of snakes. Why? Because he has an eye trained to see it. The Bible over and over talks about eyes that see and ears that hear. That is, that we perceive honestly and genuinely the world about us and the world inside us. Which brings us to the resolution, which is actually the first part of this text that Moses read. It begins in verse 19. So he says, Do not accumulate for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be also. Now, I'm... I don't like doing this a lot of the time because, uh, you know, our, our Bible translations are really wonderful and we're blessed to have so many of them. But the word accumulate that is used here is one of the newer ways to translate the word, that, which we actually get the word thesaurus from. Uh, the word accumulate is a bit dangerous because it makes it sound as if Jesus is against savings accounts and uh, retirement plans and 401ks and 403ps and all these kinds of things. It is not so. What Jesus is saying, it's actually the word treasure. He's using it as a verb. Jesus is saying, don't treasure up as your treasure things that do not last. Do not base your life on things that can be taken away from you. Don't treasure anything that that can be destroyed or eaten or rust or debilitate or can be stolen. And so he says, number one, you've got to define your treasure. You've got to define what treasure is. Go to a junkyard one day. Go to a junkyard. Everything, and what you'll see, everything in that junkyard at one time was considered to be a treasure. You know, I remember the first uh, 1968, brand new car my parents ever bought. 1968 Pontiac Bonneville. Uh, kind of a purple maroon color. I don't know where they got that color from. White vinyl interior. I think it was a treasure to the Absher family, especially when we were making these long trips back to Texas. Guess where that car is right now? John Ortberg says that earthly treasure plus time equals junk. Some years ago, it was actually our, the first six months that we were living in Brazil back in 1989. Ellen and I and a couple of friends of ours, uh, along with Jessica, who was just uh, about a, a three-year-old kid at the time, decided that we, we were living as our first Christmas in Brazil, and we decided that we were going to go to the coast. We had been invited to a small, um, 
a coastal town, a, a fishing village to spend Christmas. And we were living in Brasilia in the middle of the, of the country. The coast was, you know, it was a two days drive. First day, we're worn out. We stay in this little place called Sechi Lagoas. Uh, seven lakes just outside of Belo, uh, Belo Horizonte. And, uh, you know, just because you're a missionary doesn't mean you're smart. And Basil and I, thinking that we were only going to be here for a little bit, we found the cheapest hotel we could find. I mean, it was not a very nice hotel. And one of the things that stands out to me and stands out to Ellen, and I'm just grateful that Jessica is too young to remember to have that imprinted on her, was that there was the biggest spider web I had ever seen in my life up there in the corner over where Jessica was sleeping. And Ellen is going, you know, I don't know about this place. What are you thinking? And the problem was I wasn't. I was just tired. And I, you know, and you know, you can go to that kind of a hotel. You can go to any kind of a hotel. And you walk in and you go, you know, I don't really like what I'm seeing here, so I guess I could go down to the Costco and buy a big screen television. And I could go down to the sleep store and I could get a really nice mattress. And I can go to Beth, Beth, that's that, <laughs> Beth, uh, Bed and Beyond. I, you know, tongue twister, it speaks my life. So I get past all of these things. You go to that store where you can buy all of that stuff and you can buy floor mats, you can buy towels. Uh, you can get the new mattress. You can go down to an art gallery and you can get new, new paintings to put on the wall. But nobody does that when they go to a hotel like this. Why? Because you're going to check out the next day. Now, I don't have to explain what check out means, right? It's all temporary. The, the, the point is that earthly treasure does not last. And that's why you deploy your heart after the real treasure. What does it mean to, to treasure up treasure in heaven? Does it mean that I have a bank account in heaven? Does it mean that I, I make deposits in heaven? Is, is this what I'm going to spend when I get to heaven and get to eternity with God? Well, remember the context of the sermon. Jesus is preaching that the kingdom of God is here right now. You know that show, um, Many House Nation? It's an interesting show to me. Families are moving from a big house sometimes, you know, uh, 2,500, 3,000, 4,000 square feet, and they want to move everything themselves. They want to live in a house that's, that's 500 square feet or less. And so there's this exercise that they go through in which they take all of the things that they want to take to the new house, to the mini house, and they pile it in the middle of the floor. And the guy that's producing the show and is a star of it will walk in and say, listen, there's more stuff in this room right now that can fit inside of that house. You've got to start paring down, paring down, paring down, paring down. And by the end of they get through that process, they have found the treasure that trumps all the other treasures. And that's what they're able to move into that house with. When that happens in the human heart, when you have, with your trained inner eyes, and, and a sensitivity to the difficulty of seeing greed in the human heart, you're able to see clearly and in a focused manner the treasure that, tre that, that trumps all of the other treasures, which is God. When, when this happens in the human heart and you take residence, take up residence in the kingdom of God, the treasure that trumps all of the other treasure changes you. That's what happens in worship. Is we're reminding our human heart. We're reminding each other. 
We are declaring truths that are more than just truths we live by. They are the truths that form the way that we think about all of our existence. And we're changed. And what happens is sort of described by Paul in Galatians chapter 6. Where he says, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. One of the ways that people, I think, read the Sermon on the Mount is that they read it like they would read some kind of a morality book or philosophical book. That the way you read the Sermon on the Mount is it's a treatise on morality and living this authentic life. That what really matters is the heart. and The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is about authentic living as a human being. As the human being you were always intended to become. But it's more than that. When Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God is here, he was not planting a flag and claiming a neutral territory that no one had ever seen or been to before. It wasn't like Neil Armstrong planting a flag on the moon. It wasn't Sir Edmund Hillary planting a flag at the top of Mount Everest. When Jesus announced the sovereign rule of God in creation, he was saying that the power of God has invaded has invaded creation that had been taken over by hostile and dark powers. That it wasn't neutral. That the kingdom of God was coming as, a, as, as God's kingdom into a creation that had been taken over by darkness. And in Christ, God was not outflanking the forces of chaos and the forces of destruction and hatred and suspicion and violence and pride, but He was defeating them in Christ. They have been dethroned. And so when Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 tells the parable about, here's this fellow that's walking by this, this field and He notices something kind of odd and he digs up and finds a treasure. He covers it back up. He goes and he sells everything that he has in order to possess that treasure. He says, that is what the kingdom of God is like. And that happens when we realize that that's how God sees us. Going all the way back to Exodus chapter 19, the people have been brought out of their They've been redeemed from their slavery in Egypt. They they have been given a a, a new life to live. They are no longer going to be the kingdom of Egypt. They are going to be the kingdom of God, Israel itself. They are being given a new way to live. And God says, after after redeeming them and saving them from what it was that was killing them, God says to them in Exodus chapter 19, You, out of all of the people in the entire world, are my peculiar treasure, my treasured possession. And Peter, picking up on that in 1 Peter chapter 2, says the same thing. One of the ways that God becomes your treasure is when you realize that God has made you His treasure. That you have been not only made into a, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, 
that you're God's special possession. About verse 9 or so in chapter 2. And when that begins to get down inside of us, and as Wayne talked about earlier in the communion devotional, that, that it wasn't that just Christ died for us, He also suffered for our sin, which gives us an indication of what it is that the depth of the darkness that Jesus is, is saving us out of. But it's not just the forgiveness of sins. It's about a whole new way of thinking about life and thinking about who you are because of a new way of thinking about God and the way that God thinks about you. And one of the things that happens when you discover God is the treasure beyond all treasure, He is the treasure that trumps all other treasures, then there's a transformation that takes place in all of the other things that we treasure in this life. And they don't just become stuff, and they don't just become our stuff, they become the stuff that, as Paul says to that church in Galatians, that you, know, you can sow into other people's lives. That you can bring goodness, that you can, that you can use that in a way that reflects what it is that God has done in your life, that He has given you everything, and that everything that God has given you is something that you see is more valuable than anything that is ever going to disappear, that could be stolen from you, or will fall apart, or will rust, or can be stolen. And then the kingdom of God begins to make itself known deeper and more deeply and wider and more broadly in the world around us. If there are ways that, that we might help you this morning come into that kind of a kingdom that becomes the greatest treasure because God is the greatest treasure. And for you to become His treasure and you know that all of eternity has been given to you and that all things have been given to you because of what it is that God has accomplished in Christ, then we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.